Today on the podcast, Jason and I go into more detail about the importance of mapping your knowledge graph on your journey to establishing a monopoly in your niche. You see, when you structure your content in a way that anticipates the questions and problems that need to be solved and you publish them, then it's just a matter of time until all roads lead to Rome. You're listening to Digital Bacon FM. Top of the hour, 11 o'clock, Tuesday, and of course, joined by the marketing maestro himself, Stephen Barnes. Good morning. Well, hello there, young man. Well, I like it when you say young man. Makes me feel good about myself. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. Easter's coming soon, and um, I'm off on a cruise next week. Where are you cruising? I'm cruising from Hong Kong to Singapore with my darling wife for uh, three nights on the QE on the Queen Elizabeth, the latest uh, flagship vessel from the Kunai line. You flesh bastard. Very nice. Someone's got to do it, mate. Someone's <laughs> got to do it. Absolutely. Now, today you want to talk about mapping the knowledge graph and also domain searches and how to dominate them. Well, yeah, dominating search. What about domain searches? I think the two are two separate uh, uh, concepts. So, uh, but mapping the knowledge graph is where the action is in the connection economy. I'm not quite sure that people um, realize um, what that is or indeed how it works. Okay, so uh, it goes like this, right? When you are looking for something these days, you head off to the Google search box and you type in whatever it is that you're looking for, correct? Yes. So if you think about that concept, then ostensibly, uh, either now or going forward, if you have got a particular question that need answering, if you type that question into the Google search box, um, there's a pretty decent chance that uh, the kind of information that you'll need to answer that question, if indeed a direct answer to that question um, is not available, uh, you will get that uh, answer to the question or you'll get the genesis of the answer to the question because that's where you've begun your search and you couch your search in a way as to query whatever's out on the internet to try and get you the answer. Mm. Yeah? Yep. So if you're, in a, if you're in a particular niche and you wish to uh, develop relationships by answering people's questions and therefore helping them solve their, solve their problems, kind of makes sense if you think about it to create a capability on your own websites whereby at any stage in the future where somebody types in a question that's related to your niche there's a pretty good chance that as a result of the way that you've configured your content and you've designed your content that your content will deliver the answer to that question mm. so for example um what's the minimum salary for a hong kong employment visa so if you type that question into Google now, for example, you'll see that there's four or five entries from our various websites that uh, delivers the answer to that question. Mm. Uh, and the reason why you know you get that result is because we've ostensibly mapped the knowledge graph. And what this means is that because we have got a, a such a d deep domain knowledge over our niche um, and we have produced a, a huge array of content over the last six or seven years that's specifically designed to educate people as to how you go about navigating our niche. And more importantly, configuring that content from the perspective that we've anticipated the type of questions that people typically ask in relation to our niche, and then um, 
produced uh, answers via our content to those questions. Uh, and in that way, over, as I say, six or seven years of consistently publishing according to that dynamic, we have essentially gone on to map the knowledge graph in relation to Hong Kong immigration. So if you were to type any sort of search string of information that relates to Hong Kong immigration, any question that you might have, there's a pretty decent chance that there'll be at least one, if not two or more entries from our websites that appear on the first page of, uh, of Google in response to those search queries. Mm. So that, in short, is really how you go about mapping the knowledge graph and thereby dominating search. It's actually a very simple concept. It drives to the heart of Google's main mission, which is to deliver the best possible answer to any query that anybody types into the search box. Mm. So as most people, business owners, I should say at least, think about their websites, they tend, to, they tend to think about their websites not so much as a sort of a relationship development platform, but more of a kind of a brochure uh, platform, you know, where you put your information onto that website that speaks um, really about what you are as a business and doesn't actually drive to the heart of why people might be on that website initially, which is to seek an answer to a question or get uh, help uh, solving the problem. Um, so if you are a business owner and you're thinking about um, wanting to use the internet as a strategic way to develop relationships and then out of those relationships, commercial activity can, can um, emerge, then anticipating all the kind of content that you could possibly develop that educates in your niche and configuring also that content by um, uh, answering questions and helping people to solve problems through um, you know, the queries that they put into the search box. If you publish consistently over time, there will come a point where you've effectively covered all the bases that you could possibly ever cover uh, in relation to your niche. You'll have a significant pool of content over time that will uh, go on to represent a kind of like an engine of growth for you because you never have to worry about trying to attract customers to your business. Essentially, your business, the customers will come to you because they've, uh, they've searched in Google for it and they found their way onto your websites and you've delivered a remarkable experience while they're there. And uh, if you've applied some of the ideas inherent in intelligent content marketing, as we've discussed previously on your show, then you've got an opportunity to, you know, really... Um, uh, get those relationships and uh, and surprise and delight them and uh, and get economic activity out of it. Huh? So very simple idea, but that's mapping the knowledge graph and dominating search. Now, how do you get around all of the other publishers who do who do those listicles? Let, let's go to F and B or hospitality or hotels, for example. You would you would say I would like to find the best restaurant in an area, and you're going to pull up. 10,000 articles that are reviews from all sorts of different publishers. Uh, those listicles, the best, the easiest, all of those things. You, you're talking service industry where you're answering questions like, what is the minimum salary? In other industries, how would you, if you are less content, uh, I, I don't know quite how to describe this, um, where, say a hotel, for example, somebody's going to know the hotel by location or know the location they're going to go to. Then they're going to ask the question, what's the best hotel in Cape Town to stay at? How do you yeah. avoid that trap um, but still get yourself ahead of all of those listicles? 
Well, it depends on your niche, right? So, you know, if you if, if somebody's going to type in what's the best, then clearly what's going to happen is uh, maybe 1,000 other uh, service providers or um, other parties that are interested in trying to get relationships as a result of mm. answering or addressing the question, what's the best? Um, you're, you know, they're going to get there before you because they've been there longer than you. They're probably, they're probably much better resource than you. They've probably got, you know, world-class SEO on their pages and, and, you know, you're going to struggle with that. Mm. So, you know, you've got to think, you've got to think sort of around the story, right? Not so much what's the best, but you've got to say, well, typically what is, what have you got in your proposition that represents the type of questions that somebody might reasonably expect to ask so that you can then develop content to uh, to collect those relationships as and when those questions get asked. So you, you'd have to consign the idea of, you know, mastering the, um, uh, the search results for something like what's the best mm. and then think about, well, OK, you know, what else is going on in my uh, in my proposition that uh, won't attract you know all those people that are going to ask what's the best, but they're going to ask something else instead. Just because somebody else has um, dominated what's the best doesn't mean that you can't go on and dominate, you know, some other query that's related to what you're doing. Mm. So um, in, F- in F&B, it's really all, all about kind of like, perhaps, you know, experiences. So it might be that you want to say, um, uh, where is a good place for a 50th birthday party, for example, in such and such a location? You type that query into Google yourself and see what answers come up. If you believe from what you see that you've got the ability to produce a content proposition that's 10 times better than anything that's on that first page, and you produce a content proposition that's 10 times better than anything on that first page, then you will end up being number one. I've, I've just made a note of that. I'm going to ask Google that in 15 years' time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so you've got, you've, got to, you've got to start somewhere, right? Um, uh-huh. And so, I mean, F&B is a little bit unusual because, as we've discussed before, you know, the vast majority of people will go searching probably against 100 search strings, specifically looking for something that it can eat in a particular location of a particular mm. ilk and caliber. Um, so it's a little, it's a little bit different in F and B, but if you're in the, if you're in the, um, uh, let's say the tire uh, reconditioning business, mm. uh, you think about the top 100 questions that anybody ever asks you about reconditioned tires uh, and what that's all about. And you answer, sorry, and you produce content that speaks to, uh, well, answers the, the, those questions. And if nobody else is uh, answering those questions on reconditioned tires, then there's a pretty good chance that you're going to end up dominating search over time. True. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that would come to mind for me would be safety. Are reconditioned tires safe? So I suppose that your first well, bit of content well, well, would be would be to uh, to convince people that uh, that they are safe. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay. So it's a, yeah, it, you know, it's the kind of thing that you, you know, you know your business, you know your business better than anybody else. And because you know your business, you know your customers. Hmm. You know your customers, you can then think about the kind of questions that would get asked both from a um uh from a, a Google query perspective, but also the kind of uh, questions that get asked when you're talking to your customers every day. So over time, if you produce answers to those questions, you're going to make an appearance in Google. And if your content proposition is 10 pounds better than anybody else's, and you judge that by doing the search yourself and seeing what the answers look like, um, then you know, you're going to win by default. So if somebody has a small business and they now want to embark down the road of creating a lot of content, do they have to have an, uh, 
a, a lot of knowledge about how Google works and all of that, or can they just start not at all. content? Not at all. Because I not think it all. terrifies we most had, people, me included. Yeah. 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 No, when we started, we didn't really know how Google works. In fact, the reality is that the rest of the world didn't know how Google works. And seven, six, seven years ago, we were spending huge sums of money each month on, on sort of Indian engineers who were trying to game the Google algorithm and were able to get us on the first page, you know, relatively quickly. All that's done now. The uh, Google algorithm has become so complex and so complicated and has got so much, uh, the application, so much machine learning to it and artificial intelligence. And they're just heretics. And they've got the ability to really fathom, you know, what the best possible answer is to the queries that, uh, that are asked. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about, you know, the technical aspects of so-called search engine optimization. What you've got to do is simply focus on producing the best possible content that answers that question. Um, yes, you're going to need a modicum of technical know-how because you're going to operate your website via the WordPress platform. The WordPress platform is actually you know, quite simple. You could spend a one-day program learning how it all works, and that would be the end of it. You'd then be a master of WordPress after that. Mm. Uh, and there is another element to WordPress called Yoast SEO. It's just a plugin for WordPress. And yep. WordPress is free, by the way. We, you, know, you don't have to be intimidated by any of this stuff. Um, and uh, Yoast SEO just gives you four or five places where you can, in essence, put the main um, the main vernacular of your question, pop that main vernacular of your question into sort of five um, five boxes that they present to you. Uh, and then essentially WordPress and Yoast SEO will take care of it. And that's about the, the extent of your technical prowess needed. Mm. Now, we've spoken... Um a little bit about Facebook in the past and obviously they're facing a huge shit sandwich at the moment um, and I actually read an interesting Isn't that shocking? Uh, isn't that shocking? Isn't it just? Um, I read an interesting article on CNN this morning to say, you know, Facebook is just the tip of the iceberg. There are three to 4,000 companies that are harvesting your data <laughs> and they're actually quite pleased that Facebook is getting it because they're not getting it. Um, yeah, well, that's true. Do you think it's going that's to change well, that, change the landscape? Well, okay. First point to make about that is, my you know, is what do you expect if you put a twenty year old kid, you know, in charge of something like the world's social social graph? You know, got notwithstanding his acumen as a uh, you know as a, as a as an entrepreneur and the massive amounts he's achieved. The guy is still a kid, right, at the end of the day, and you just don't have the maturity and the experience to lead an organization like that uh, to protect people's interests. So we really shouldn't be surprised. I think that's just young technical entrepreneur naivety that's responsible for all of that. Yeah. And then we go on to understand, you know, the shenanigans that's going on at Cambridge, at Cambridge Analytics, and there are a lot smarter heads have understood the true power and potential of, uh, of what you can do if you're able to access social, access social graph data, such as um, you know Facebook are entirely built upon. And just look at the uh, the shenanigans that they've been up to. Mm. So yeah, data is um, this 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 was always going to be a problem. Wherever you're going to rely on the goodwill of uh, of technology companies to protect your interests, when when ostensibly their reason for living is to be able or existing is to be able to access all of your data and then monetize it any which way at your expense, com your, your expense completely. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. So I'm reasonably hopeful that what will result from this will be 
um, governments around the world legislating for the fact that, you know, your data is your data. And uh, to the extent that other parties are going to access your data, you have to give fully informed consent and you need to be reporting it. Then these businesses need to report to you exactly what they've used the data for, when they've used it and give you the ability to one click opt out at any point in time mm. and just make, you know, the whole value of data to be equal to the value of cash that you've got in your personal bank accounts. Well, that's this, the value of data all told, you see. And this is the problem of free in, in one respect in that we get the use of the likes of Facebook and Twitter and <clears throat> Google and WhatsApp and all of this for free. Does that mean that the trade-off is the ability for them to market to us based on our own preferences because that's really how they're making their money is to sell advertising, targeted advertising. Well, well, well you see, I, I, I actually don't have a problem conceptually with me, uh, with, de- with Facebook knowing what my data is. The problem that I have with Facebook is the fact that they've configured their proposition to make that data available to you know anybody that comes along. They just haven't been fidel to the idea of protecting your interests inherent in the data. Hmm. Um, so if Facebook, if Facebook were, were, were battened down completely tight and I knew that my data was being used to my benefit because I'm only getting stuff that is attractive to me and I could ensure that Facebook were not being... Um, uh, Machiavellian in how they manage my data, then I wouldn't have a problem with it. You know, just put that back into um, my immigration practice. Jason, the truth is, I have, we have huge amount of data. You know, we think about seven years worth of immigration applications for foreign nationals who come to Hong Kong. We collect all kinds of information that we need to do our work. But philosophically, from day one, I've always said, I don't care what data we collect. We are never going to be a data play. We use data purely for the purposes of getting people their immigration permissions. Clients don't give us their data for us to make money out of what we learn about them en route to getting their immigration permissions. Clients give us their data just to get their their immigration permissions. So every time I do a public presentation about the sort of the... Um, the, the novel business model that we have used using intelligent content marketing. Nine times out of 10, there's a question that guests ask that says, oh, this is all very interesting, Stephen, but what's your big data play? Well, frankly, there isn't a big data play in my game at all because mm-hmm. we respect people's data and why they give it to us. And we only have one use for it, which is our core purpose, which is to get their, get their visas approved. I, I know that in South Africa, they are bringing about regulation that puts puts really big controls on how you manage people's data and how you protect it. I would assume that in in Hong Kong it's the same. Well conceptually, yeah. The problem is that you don't you you know the vast majority of businesses are able to hide behind the corporate shield. Um, and they never and the officers themselves never get um, sanctioned criminally for you know, breach of the uh, of, 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 of the use of one's, one's data. Mm. Um, you know, it's very it's the same with bankers. At the end of the day, if they made you know criminal sanctions apply for you know the shenanigans that happen in companies, mm. you can bet your bottom dollar that the individuals that make the decisions uh, and control the outcomes and fortunes of those companies, they'd think twice about what they're up to because you know they may get ten years in the clink. Mm. That'll change their attitudes, wouldn't it? And I suppose it would be the same for gun control in America if the corporations were uh, open to uh, civil claims by people who got shot 
having sold a firearm, they would be less inclined to sell them. Well, that's that's a good point. And uh, uh, the question there is, you know, is, it, is there any kind of judicial appetite for creating new law by uh, introducing civil civil sanctions for uh, the manufacturers of guns where those guns have been used to, uh, you know, uh, kill or to seriously or otherwise maim? Sure. Um, all right. Back back to data now. How, how do you protect yours? Oh, we have industry standard systems that mean that, you know, when clients give us our data, we're locked up mm. high tight and, uh, uh, and squeaky clean, so to speak, you know, behind the requisite firewalls and other protections. Mm. Cool. Now, managing, the managing, managing data isn't a problem, Jason. It's really not a problem. It's when you want to get sexy using that data that all the problems occur. Mm. Yeah, I remember that. going to be... Uh, Mm-hmm. It, it, in Hong Kong, I remember the change going back, I think it was 2006 or 2007, where they went from an opt-in and opt-out. They made it, you know, they were sick and tired of people getting spammed and made that the, they changed from to an opt-in system rather than uh, than being able to just spam well, the, people. Yeah, well, the, pro- the, the problem is, right, that uh, you get... You, 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 even though you've tried to protect your um, your email address from getting on the spam list, you could quite properly give your email address to somebody that you have no expectation whatsoever that they will sell your data on. But they do sell it on. They look for any kind of opportunity, especially companies that are going under. Companies that haven't really done very well commercially, they they know that uh, the business is going to fail, and they look for every opportunity to uh, monetize what's left over. And mm. if that if that means you know selling on all your data to other people, then they'll do that because it's just you know a way for them to cut their losses. Now, when are you heading yeah. off on your trip? I'm heading off on Saturday, and I'll be uh, able to speak to you again the following Friday. All right, excellent. Well, let's I'll catch up. Sh- I'll be on the cruise ship. You say you won't be able to catch me because <laughs> I'm going off. I'm going off the grid. And you've you've said that to me uh, two times now. So I think you're starting to rub it in because I'm not going anywhere. Actually, talking about going places, it's not going to be too long before I'm in Hong Kong and we can actually do an interview face to face for a change. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, the last meeting I had just before I came to see you was with one of my mutual contacts. And uh, I told him that you may very well be coming out, and he's hoping that you're going to be here uh, while he's uh, here because he's off to Costa Rica and he'll be gone for, well, I'll be back in about a month or so, but he definitely wants to see you. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, well, we'll keep that one a little bit of a mystery then. Well, you know, <laughs> I'll keep your friendships confidential on that. <laughs> oh, there we go. Back to protecting my data. You betcha. That's what we do at the Hong Kong Visa Center. Thanks very much, Stephen. Have an absolutely awesome trip. And we won't catch up this Friday, but definitely the one after. Bye. Ta-ra. Ships ahoy. <laughs> Digital Bacon FM. Hopefully this episode answered your questions about what you need to know in order to go full steam ahead with crafting a successful business proposition in the connection economy. Join us on the next podcast for more details about how to become indispensable without being a slave to your business.